0: First John 2, 15-17. Let's stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. The Apostle says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I've been out of the pulpit for two weeks. I'm out of sorts. I forgot to pray first. So let's go ahead and pray and ask God's blessing on our time for our congregation. Our Father, you have given us as your people a role to play in this world. Help us as your people to stand in this dark world as a light. And may we be ones who bear witness to a dark and dying world that those around us might know Christ and come with us into his light, into his life. Let us learn to be all things to all people, that we might save some. And also, Lord, may we never lose our distinctiveness. Let us not be ensnared by the idols of Canaan. May we wholly be committed to you, our Father, and may our affections and desires be transformed into the image of Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen. You can imagine two warships side by side in the ocean. One is as good as sunk, full of holes, taking on water, listing. The other ship is sound, ready to sail home after a victory into safe harbor. Uh, If you could choose which ship you could be on, which would you choose? The answer is obvious, I hope. John lays out here for us a similar choice. And he's also quite clear the choice is obvious. You can commit yourself to the love of the world, which is a sinking ship. Or you can love the Father, which is a victorious ship sailing for the harbor of eternal life. It really is, in one sense, that obvious. John, of course, he doesn't wait for us to decide. He tells us what to do with the first imperative in this book. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. For John, the difference between riding the sinking ship of the world to the bottom of the ocean or riding the sound ship home to safe harbor and eternal life is marked by the object of our love. What do we love? If you love the world, you're heading for destruction. If you love God, the Father, you are enjoying the beginnings of eternal life. Now, if we're going to identify the world as a sinking ship, we should define what we mean by that. In what sense is the world a sinking ship? Uh, First, here we see John in no uncertain terms, making it clear we can't ride the fence on this one. It's life or death. In 15b, he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. One or the other it has a similar force here to the claim statements that we've seen already in this book these whoever says statements this is anyone who anyone who loves the world the love of the father is not in him either you're in light or in darkness this is what john does throughout this book is he makes categories you're in light or darkness you have life or you're you're in death you're you you love the world or you love the father If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Love of the Father here is probably objective. In in other words, it's talking about our love for the Father. Of course, we love him only because he first loved us, which is another sermon. Um, But anyone who loves the world does not love the Father, John says. Those two things are mutually exclusive. The love of the Father in our hearts for the Father cannot cohabitate with love for the world. B.F. Westcott said, There can be what but one supreme object of moral devotion. In Matthew six twenty four, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. In this case, he's talking about money. You cannot serve God and money. In 1 Kings eighteen twenty one, Elijah says to the people, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. I always like that, that line. How long will you go limping? James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Joshua, of course, in Joshua 24.15, choose this day whom you will serve. So which ship will you be on? Where is the object of your love? Is it on the father or is it on the world? You can't have your cake and eat it too in this circumstance. Next, John gives us two reasons why love for God and love for the world are mutually exclusive And the first reason that he gives us is that the world and its things are not from the Father. They have a different origin. This is fairly obvious. Imagine a man surrounded by every possible worldly pleasure. And he says one day in his worldly delight, what a kind and gracious God has been. He has been to me for giving me all these good things. That That's silly. All these sinful things as though they were a gift from God. But this is the kind of thing possibly that the proto-gnostic teachers in that day may have been saying, and probably in a more tempered way, perhaps a more epicurean tone, a bit of wisdom to it. But essentially, it doesn't matter so much what we do with these shells of our bodies. These husks we will be rid of them anyway. So let's try to maximize the pleasure we can experience in the meantime. Or today we hear it just the same, this is what I love. This is how God made me to love, and I'm going to indulge in that. And this is a good gift from my Heavenly Father. But John says, no, all that is in the world is not from the Father. He helps us to understand better exactly what He means by the world and the things in the world with three descriptions, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The desires of the flesh probably are the lusts of our fallen nature. James 1, 14-15 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death, sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Paul helps define further the uh, desires of the flesh in Galatians 5.17. He says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. But for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He goes further in 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the things of the flesh. We should also be warned and remember the dangers of self-righteousness are also from the flesh. This is the whole point of the rest of Galatians. For example, in Galatians 3, 3, are you so foolish having begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So flesh isn't just those rank sins that we think of, but it's also the sins of self-righteousness. These are the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes. The eyes are more often than not the source of desire or lust. Um, Three scriptural examples. Genesis three, six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Genesis six, verse two, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Joshua seven, twenty-two: the story of Achan taking what he wasn't supposed to. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. Jesus also speaks of the sin of the eyes, the desire of the eyes in Matthew 18, uh, 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. He also says in the Sermon on the Mount, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? We have to be wary of the desires of the eyes, which are often the source of our lusts and desires. The third, the pride of life. Um, here, the the Greek word that's typically used for life is Zoe, Zoe. Um, but this one is Bios, which is the word we get biology from. Um, And this is a distinct word from Zoe. A.T. Robertson says that bios is the external aspect of life, while Zoe is the inner principle of life. So the boastfulness, the boasting, they're boasting in their external aspects of their lives, their their earthly accomplishments, their possessions, these type of things. Westcott says that it's the vain glory which springs out of belonging, which belongs to our visible earthly life. And Calvin says that it's ambition, boasting, contempt of others, blind love of self, headstrong self-confidence. A classic example is the King Nebuchadnezzar. Is this not, is this great Babylon which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence? And for the glory of my majesty, this is the pride of life. These descriptions they describe what John means by the world and the things in the world. Also, found Jesus comments on the parables, uh, the parable of the soils, um, to add a bit of helpful definition to this idea of the things of the world. He says. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by three things. The cares and riches and pleasures of life. Cares, riches and pleasures. And their fruit does not mature. And we could, I think, almost paste these three descriptions over John's descriptors. Pleasures, desires of the flesh, riches, desires of the eyes, cares, the pride of life these three descriptions make quite plain how John understands this word world. So it's not the globe that we do not love the globe, the earth, which we are called to love, to care for, to steward and cultivate as God's image bearers. Neither is it the people of the world, even sinful people in the world, that we are called not to love for they are our neighbors and we are called to love them. Calvin says, by the world, understand everything connected with the present life apart from the kingdom of God and the hope of eternal life. So he includes in it corruptions of every kind and the abyss of all evils in the world are pleasures, delights and all those allurements by which man is captivated so as to withdraw himself from God. John's emphasis here is, is on morality, the morality of the world. The corruption in the world due to sin. And so he's not saying the whole wide world is bad and we should pull ourselves back and become monks or Amish. That's not what he's saying. At the same time, we should keep in mind that there's more to this concept of world than just strictly morality. Morality. We see this in chapter three of of first John when John says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John's view of of world is more rounded, more robust than just sin and and immorality. We have a tendency to. Try to flatten everything for the sake of definition to one or two dimensions. But John has a three-dimensional understanding of this, that, that uh, we have the world's goods, that these are, in one sense, the world's goods, and yet they can be used to express divine love. Similarly, Paul says, and he reminds us, set not your minds on things that are above Or set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Notice notice this is location, not just morality, because he says in the previous verse, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So he has a more three-dimensional understanding of this word world, and this is important because if we hear John saying on the one hand, the whole globe and everything in the world is just bad, We'll become reclusive and we'll fail to enjoy the many good gifts in the world that God has given us. Food, uh, beauty, taste, sounds, friendship, all of these good things are from God. James says every good and perfect thing is from above. On the other hand, if we are only here, John saying the world as morality, we may begin to live as citizens of a planet that the Bible says is under a curse. And failed to seek primarily the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God in whom is hidden our life. So the first reason why love for the father on the one hand and love for the world on the other hand are mutually exclusive is that the things of the world are not from the father. They have a different source, a different origin. The second he gives us is that the world and its desires are passing away. But those who are in God, who do God's will, abide forever. So this for me is the sinking ship metaphor. It's passing away. Why would you join yourself to something that is is damned and doomed to destruction? And it seems so obvious. That's what John says. And the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now why does John say the world is passing away? What does this mean? Again, he doesn't mean globe, though, and in one sense I think that's true and future, but rather I think he has in mind The world as the dominion of the prince of darkness, that the prince, the domain of darkness is passing away. Just as he said in in a few verses earlier in verse chapter two, verse eight, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. I think G.K. Beale is helpful here. He says from another perspective Christ's life and death have such a cosmic impact on the world through his followers that it can be said that the old fallen world of darkness is passing away. The basis for the cosmic upheaval is that Christ's redemptive work has dealt a mortal blow to the evil ruler of the old age, uh, referencing uh, 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Those who identify with Christ's redemptive work also participate in the victory over the devil. Um, just the previous passage, you have overcome the evil one because you are in Christ. So in Christ, in his incarnation, in his life and his death and especially his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has shot the hull of Satan's dark dominion through With cannonballs. He he sunk it for all intents and purposes. And it's on its way to the bottom of the sea. On the one side of the ship, of the devil's ship, reads the domain of darkness. That's its name. And on the other side is the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the name of Christ's ship. And all men, all of us men, were on the first ship. Paul says... We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But some of us, by the grace of God, has been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So we can have one or the other. We can't have both. We may either love the world Or we can love the Father. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think it can be helpful to summarize this passage. Maybe I'll wait. Uh, I think it's helpful to, to summarize this passage by reading it backwards. That is, the world and its desires are passing away, while those who are doing God's will abide forever. And the world and its things are not from the Father. Therefore, love of the Father and love of the world are mutually exclusive. Therefore, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the things or the things in the world. What does that mean ultimately? What does it mean to love something at all? Uh, Love is an important word in 1 John. uh, and, And John is seeking to direct, to channel that love on a particular object, its proper object. God, the Father. And love is a word that is notoriously difficult to find. And again, I think it's because we tend to want to flatten everything to one definition all of the time. But no one definition of a rich word like love is sufficient. It's kind of like we we will never see the glint of a facet of a diamond off more than one or two facets at any given time. So it's difficult to capture the whole of what is love In one definition. But also, the author of the passage does not generally assume the whole of love every time he uses it. He also has one or two facets in mind, and I think in this case, John has these two aspects of love in mind abiding and obedience. Abiding and obedience. This is the second passage in 1 John that has the idea of love at its center. And in both of these passages so far, John seeks to direct our love toward a particular object. In uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, he said, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And I think this contrast that John has between love and hate throughout the book is one helpful way to get at a definitional understanding of what love is. Remember, biblically, hatred is not just an emotion of loathing, but love is to forsake or to reject a person. This is a major component of biblical hatred, to forsake them. And so when John says later in this chapter, they went out from us because they were not of us, that's, a def- that's an example of biblical hatred, to forsake or reject. By contrast, then, one facet of love is commitment, it's abiding, it's staying, remaining. So in this passage, love is much more than uh, things we like or are attracted to, thankfully, because be more attracted to God than to sin it's, it's rather it's a question of our location, of our identity, where we abide. Are we in the domain of darkness or are we in the kingdom of the sun? Are we on the sinking ship or the sailing ship? Are, are we sons of the father or of the devil? If love was just about attraction or fondness or inclination towards someone, and all of those are facets of love, but... But if love was just those things, who could stand under the weight of John's statement? If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone is attracted to the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That would be a horrifying idea for me. Now, the other aspect, so the first aspect is abiding, is remaining, uh, staying and the other aspect of love that we see here is obedience. We see in this passage, the worldly man is he's driven by his desires, the desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride of life, fulfilling the cravings and the lusts of his flesh. And in verse 17, another description is given to the same person in 15 who does love the father. And it is whoever does the will of God. See, that stands in as a kind of name for that person. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, one facet of our love for God is obedience, doing the will of the Father. As Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. But of course, it's not also just a a mere begrudging conformity. I think that's why John says in in chapter five that his commandments are not burdensome. The desires of the flesh as Christians are being subordinated to the will of God and our desires, our affections are being transformed as well. And we see that the, the. The fruit of that tree is good to eat and we desire it. but We lay it on the ground because the will of God is better for me. Psalm 1 says that the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. Calvin is again helpful here. He says, By saying that they who do the will of God shall abide forever or perpetually, he means that they who seek God shall be perpetually blessed. Were anyone to object and say that no one doeth what God commands, the obvious answer is that what is spoken of here is not the perfect keeping of the law, but the obedience of faith, which, however, imperfect it may be, is yet approved by God. The will of God is first made known to us in the law, but as no one satisfies the law, no happiness can be hoped from it. But Christ comes to meet the despairing with new aid, not only regenerates us by his spirit that we may obey God, but makes us also that our endeavor, such as it it is, should obtain the praise of perfect righteousness. That's what uh, the confession says in the chapter on saving faith is that our works are accepted by God, but they are accepted not for any merit in them, but in Christ they're accepted. So do not love the world or the things in the world. This is a command about identity and conformity. Where do you stand and to whom do you conform? The world is sinking down to death but in Christ we are being led to eternal life. And before we close, I think it's an important reminder here of the audience that John is writing to. John is writing to people, we've made plain throughout the book, that John is writing to people he believes to be Christians already. On the whole, it's quite clear he views these people in Christ. And as a congregation in Christ, what does this command? Do not love the world or the things in the world mean to us who I presume are in Christ. Who have been told that by definition, we do love the father because we are in Christ. I think a few things are helpful to remember. Um, First, we should be reminded of the dangers of forsaking Christ for the world. That may sound odd to reform people because we believe in the doctrine of perseverance. Why would we warn ourselves about the dangers of forsaking Christ? But the doctrine of perseverance does not make null and void the warnings of Scripture. In fact, to the contrary, it gives them power and effect in the life of the believer. In other words, the warnings of Scripture are one of God's preserving instruments that keeps us in the faith. Those who are in Christ listen to the warnings of Scripture and abide in Christ. So, to the saints who are in Christ, do not love the world or the things in the world, and so forsake your Father. second thing to keep in mind here is that while on the whole John views them in Christ, he's surely aware with the rest of the New Testament writers that there are always tares among the wheat. Such people need to be warned that they are indeed on a sinking ship, despite the fact that they, maybe their presumption or their hypocrisy or that they're in the church and they think they're fine, they are still on the sinking ship. And so to any who are in this room, who may be of this world, even though you're here this morning, do not love the world or the things in this world. It is a trajectory to death. The only love of the Father as first shown to us by the love toward us and giving us his Son to die for our sins, for the desires of our flesh, that love leads to eternal life. A third thing to keep in mind as believers who possess this sort of positional love with respect to the Father is that we still have a lifelong process of seeing our desires changed, of becoming who we are. It's like the redeemed Israelites in the wilderness. Sometimes we want to go back to Egypt. As Keith Green pointed out, eating leeks and onions by the Nile sounds pretty good sometimes. But for the saints, the desires of the world are incongruous with the will of our Heavenly Father. There's far more joy to be had in His will than those remnants of our fleshly desires. As Peter reminds us in First Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the fetal ways of your inherit- inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So though we are on that, that ship, the sailing ship, not the sinking ship, we must remember still, remind ourselves, do not love the world, that our affections still need to be brought into conformity with Christ. I thought I'd close today with a, a list of uh, 20 scriptural reasons that I, I found uh, this list on. I think it was on monergism.com, but I thought it was really good. It's uh, scriptural reasons, 20 scriptural reasons not to love the world. And I can give you the, these later. They have the scriptures with them. For now, I'll just read them. The first reason not to love the world, because the gain of it is the loss of the soul. Because its friendship is enmity to God. Because it did not know Christ. Because it hates Christ. Because the Holy Spirit has forbidden us. Because Christ did not pray for it. Because Christ's people do not belong to it. Because it will not receive the Spirit Because its prince is Satan. Because Christ's kingdom is not of it. Because its wisdom is foolishness. Because its wisdom is ignorance. Because Christ does not belong to it. Because it is condemned. Because the fashion of it passes away. Because it slew Christ, because it is crucified to us, because we are crucified to it, because it is the seat of wickedness, and because it's God is the evil one. So remember, Christ has overcome the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world, but love the Father. Amen.